you know, it's really frustrating because we have so much to say about the world and how things should how things should go and how how we should behave as human beings. We should behave respectfully as human beings. And we're not we're not the tip top of the world. We're actually the most vulnerable. And if if we act like that and if if we make decisions based on a long-term generational perspective and not simply a quarterly profits perspective, we might have a chance. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. In this week's episode of Animalia, I sit down to chat with Philomena Quebec, a member of the Bad River Tribe in the Anishinaabe community in northern Wisconsin. There's so much we can learn from Native people in this country. There's so much to do to address 400 years of the violence, oppression, and cultural assimilation we've forced them into. There are over 500 unique federally recognized Native tribes in the U.S., and we should recognize and honor their differences and be very careful about any sweeping generalizations we make. But one thing that sticks out amongst all of these different cultures is their reverence and respect for the natural world. They all have unique perspectives and nuanced differences, but they all seem to share the notion that we are not above or superior to other life forms. We are a valuable part of larger ecosystems. For thousands of years, Native people have lived in balance and harmony with the natural world, something so many of us have long lost touch with. Creating a more inclusive society for Native communities, putting Native leaders in positions of power across the public and private worlds, celebrating and protecting their cultures rather than trying to assimilate them into our own. Not only are these necessary in terms of social justice, but they would also serve us in our fight for climate justice. I met Philomena in the making of the Wolf series this summer. You may remember her from episode four. She was kind enough to have an additional chat that I'm sharing with you today. I thought it would be helpful to understand more about the philosophy of her community when it comes to humans in the natural world order, real-life examples of when commercial interests violate and threaten their ways of life, and what we can draw from Philomena's worldview to create a more balanced society between humans and nature. Philomena is unique in that she spent the first chunk of her life living in a modern, suburban, white community, and is white-passing, as she puts it and explains in our chat. In recent years, she relocated back to her Bad River community, and having lived experiences in both worlds provides her such a unique point of view. I hope you enjoy this conversation and can learn from it as I have. I'll start with my traditional greeting. Buju Indinawe Manaduk. Babiwash Indijanakaz Mukwandodame Mushkazibing in Donjaba. I I go by the name Philomena Quebec and I have I also have a spirit name that came in a dream. And I was given that name when I was in my 20s. So as Anishinaabeg, we we understand that we all have a spirit name that is given to us. And this name usually comes in a dream. And, and you're supposed to be naming your kids when they're little, but I didn't get my name until my 20s. And, and like you said, I didn't grow up traditionally 
I grew up, I lived in Minneapolis and I came home to Bad River, Mushkazibi. That's our reservation, our community name, Mushkazibi. When I was, gosh, 33, I guess. I've been home for 30, for, for 10 years now. And so I, so I, you know, I, I came to these ways as more of an adult and it's, it's kind of a roundabout thing. I mean, I, I ended up quitting drinking and drugs when I was about 18. And through that, I had to make reparations to my family and my community. And I had to learn a whole lot of things in order to make these reparations. And, and so I started learning about this stuff and I've had many teachers and I've made many mistakes. And so I, I'm not the expert on anything or any kind of authority. I'm certainly in, you know, in the process of continually learning about my culture and learning about my language. You know, what we, we talked about last time a little bit, James, was the fact that my community and many others in the United States and in Canada and really in, in many parts of the world, under, we, we, we underwent an experience of cultural genocide. And right now this is in the news because many people are unearthing and discovering the, the bodies and the bones of children who were forced to go into cultural re-education centers to boarding schools when they were very young. And a lot of those, a lot of those babies died there. My, my family, my grandmother, she didn't go to a boarding school and neither did my mother. But what I've been learning about from my own self and from my community is that we are not unscathed. Every one of us who was alive back then, all of, you know, all the, all modern day American Indian people, regardless of whether we attended boarding school or we did not, we suffered from the consequences of the boarding school movement. And it was basically designed to rid us of any remnants of our culture and in order to not go to boarding school, like my family did, my family didn't go to boarding school, they had to pretend they were white and they had to assimilate and adopt white culture and language and traditions and go to church and really only participate in our native ways in secret. Because if you were open about this and if you openly taught your children to be proud of their culture and their history and who they were, they would be forcibly removed from your care. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really hard to think about that and think about all the ways in which this brutal and totalitarian system impacted the normal progression and growth of our culture, of our community, of my own life. And think about all the trauma that I experienced as a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm white passing. And so I don't, I don't experience the direct racism and I have, I have it pretty good. I have a lot of white privilege because of the way I look, 
but certainly I've experienced a lot of just really hard things because of what my family had to go through. My, my grandma was dark. She was, she was a lot darker than I am. And, you know, she experienced the racism. She also experienced a school system that taught her that being native wasn't as good and that our ways were savage and uncivilized and, and really brutal. Like we had a brutish way of living. And I experienced that as well in, in the school system that white culture and white society and white ways were better. And so as I'm getting older and just reclaiming my identity, I'm unlearning a lot of that. And certainly white ways are different and, and the ways of Europeans and European colonists are very different than the ways that we have as native people, but they're not better. And there's really a lot that we as Anishinaabe have to offer in terms of the whole human project. Because at this point, we're in a period of very significant change and disaster capitalism and, you know, climate crisis has already brought us close to the brink and we're really quite poised to go off the brink soon into a place where these natural systems that have been honed over over billions of years on earth here in order to support life are at a point where they're not going to be calibrated correctly and it's it's a pretty scary situation that we're in as human beings so i mean i think you know some of the things that we have to offer as Anishinaabe might be really important for other people to know about now. For some further clarification on Philomena's background, Anishinaabe is a collection of culturally related indigenous peoples that live in the Great Lakes region of the U.S. and Canada. One of the tribes within the Anishinaabe community are the Ojibwe people, and one of the tribes within Ojibwe is Bad River, a tribe of approximately 7,000 people. As legend holds, the Bad River Band was formed when a group of Anishinaabe people living on the Atlantic coast were instructed by the Great Spirit to move west until they found food that grows on water. So they did, finding wild rice on the south shore of Lake Superior. The Bad River itself flows some 75 miles in northern Wisconsin out of Lake Superior. So there are many fabrics of any culture, right? Yours included. And whenever a culture is kind of pushed and 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 you know sort of the any any colonizer tries to change the culture of the people they are colonizing those fabrics are really torn apart and that's that's part of the design right it's part of the design is to tear down someone's culture so you can build them back up in your own in your own purview of the world and and how people should live the the, 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 the fabric or the thread that I really want to dig into is, you know, the relationship for Anishinaabe people with the natural world and both how, how you understand that to be right. And, and, and the philosophies behind that and how what's happening 
in our country today, in our world at large, you know, are, are there's many, I imagine, violations of that that are hurtful and hard to process and another form of cultural genocide of that, that, that particular threat of that culture, seeing people just constantly exploit the natural world and, and, the, and the creatures, human and non-human, that, that live within it. So to, to kind of set up that discussion, could you set up the, the relationship for Anishinaabe people with the natural world and the kind of philosophies that guide that? So this is, this is a lot of the teaching that I received from my elder Mokangizis who passed away on the very first day of that Wisconsin wolf hunt. His, he also went by the name of Joe Rose. And with his passing, it's other people who he taught, you know, that are his mentees. It's, it's our responsibility to carry on the discussions that he had and the teachings because he was always really open to teaching non-Indian people as well as our own community members about these kinds of, you know, these kinds of ideas and these things that we know as, as Anishinaabe. And these, you know, these teachings come from the, the Medewin Lodge and all that. And I'm, I'm not a part of that, but, you know, I'm just going to offer you what I, what I know of those things in order to be helpful. So in the beginning of all of creation, there were, there were a number of different things that happened in a specific period of time, you know, in a succession. And we all know this because we've, we've, you know, studied science and all that. But as Anishinaabe, we have a bit of a different framework for, for how we think about these things and how creation occurred. So there's, a, there's several different orders of being. There's four different orders of beings. And the first order of beings are the rocks and the water and all that, you know, all that goes with that, with, you know, the earth. And then the second order of beings are the plant beings. And so these are all the different things we see out in the world, the grasses and the algaes and the, the, the trees, the plants that give us fruit and, um, they give us all kinds of things, right? Like oxygen to breathe. They create the atmosphere. They process that carbon dioxide and they, they help with those water cycles. And then the third order of beings are the four-legged beings and the, the beings that fly and the fish in the water, all those different cellular creatures, everything that we can think of that like an animal you know all those all those kinds of things are in that third order of being and then finally we have human beings that's the fourth order of human of of life and as Anishinaabe we conceive of these all these you know how how creation works as as the human beings being the last created and the most dependent on those other forms of life and all those other forms of life, they have just as much agency as we do. And they have thought and they have love and different emotions that they have, right? 
And, and these, these other four, you know, these other three forms of life, they have the choice of whether or not to help human beings live. They were given that choice. And there's, there's stories about that, especially with the animal beings. And, and what they decided is that they were going to give us a chance. And that was an, an initial choice that was made when, when the first babies came to the planet. And then after we screwed up before, the, you know, the, the eagle specifically, Megize, wanted to give human beings another chance at life. And, and so the animal beings have saved us more than once. So when we're out in the world doing our things as Anishinaabeg, it's incumbent upon us to offer gratitude to this gift of life that we've been given. And we do that by our prayers, by offering sema, our tobacco, and then um, also just being very respectful. So when we, you know, when we go out and we harvest food, because we take plants and animals and fish and all that kind of thing, we always offer our prayers first. And oftentimes before we have a big harvesting season, we'll have a pipe ceremony and say all the prayers and offer this Sema to all the different realms, you know, and all the different orders of creation. And especially giving thanks to these animals or these plants that we'll be harvesting. And when we go out and we do our, our activities, you know, we're, we're kind of people that depends on wild harvested foods. We don't have a whole, our culture isn't really based around growing things or having farms or anything. We're, we're out there hunting and gathering our wild rice and gathering our medicinal plants and our nutritional plants. And, you know, that, that's really how we base our life cycle is every single year we're, we're harvesting that particular animal or plant that's available and ripe at that particular time of year. And, and then we're offering our thanks and our gratitude and we're not taking too much and we're not hunting for sport, but we are, you know, we're really grateful for all those things that we've been given. There's a lot of questions, follow questions that I'm very curious to, to, to dig in there. Cause it's a very interesting and different view than, you know, sort of I was taught right? And a lot of other people are taught. The first question that comes to mind, I was actually surprised, but interested to hear why there is a fourth order. Is there any more insight for Anishinaabe people on why humans are in a separate order? Is it because we are uniquely dependent on those other three in a way that say a shark isn't? Is it because we have the ability to impact those other three and such, you know, sort of profound ways, good or bad in a way others cannot. I'm just, I, 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 my question, I don't know if my question makes sense, but I'm just kind of understanding the genesis of the fourth order and putting humans separately. Uh, Cause we know what it is in kind of Western Christian type of philosophies. And we know that that is a, an order of superiority. That's certainly not what it is for Anishinaabe people. So what, what is the kind of genesis of the creation of the fourth order? So my understanding of this is that we as human beings, especially as we mature from babies until we become adults, we forget about our connection. 
So we have this ability to become so into our own culture and into our own mindset that we we disconnect from the the love of creation that is all the way through us. So as as people, you know, one of the teachings that we have and you get this when you have a baby or you know, you're around babies is that when those babies have that soft spot, that's what they're born with. They have that area in their brain is this direct connection between the rest of creation and they're able to communicate very well and they have so much knowledge. But then as you get older and you mature, that that soft spot closes up and we forget a lot of things as people. So it's, it's, I think it really has to do with that kind of perspective. You know, when you were talking, James, one of the things that I've been working on in the last couple of years is really integrating this, this mindset into my vision and wherever I go, I'm thinking about this. And I would, I would really urge you to consider this little exercise maybe. And when I go around now and I see all the plants that I'm walking by, the trees, whatever, all the little weeds that are growing up, what I think of them now, I think of them as ancestors and grandmas and grandpas. And I think of them as just loving me and endowing this great love upon me and upon my children and upon everyone that I see. And they're silent and they're not trying to get out in front of you in any way, but they're providing us with these tremendous gifts. And they're not here for us to exploit them. So I would, I would just maybe consider this, like consider kind of flipping that script and that, you know, these trees aren't here to be cut down or to even be carbon sinks or anything, but they can be, you know, they will give themselves to do that, but they're, they're really here to love us. And, you know, one of the, I, I'm always trying to combine what I know about Western hypo, hypo, hypotheoretical science you know, this idea that we have these hypotheses and then we test them out based on whatever we're learning. And, and you know, it's, it's great. I think science, like that way of doing science is really great. Anishinaabe science, the technical ecological science that we have and all the teachings that we have that have been passed on to our ancestors, they're great too. And these, these things can also come together. So I've you know, I, I learn a lot or try to learn a lot about what, you know, this climate, our changing climate is doing. And one of the things that we have been experiencing is really high rates of carbon in our climate at this point. So the carbon that we have is going up and up and up. It's this, it's this trajectory that's really changed from the time that our ancestors lived here, right? So we have, we have, you know, what is it? 300 parts per million of carbon in, in the climate right now in the atmosphere. 
And what that does to plants and what the client, climate scientists have been telling us is that the plants are growing at extraordinarily high rates. They're, they're just growing because they, they have all this carbon and it stimulates their growth. But as an Anishinaabeg, what I see in my garden, my garden is going crazy. And these plants that were knee high last year are to my shoulder this year or even higher. And what I see those plants doing is that they are my grandparents and they are frantic to capture that carbon because they love us mm. and they don't want us to suffer you know and they're doing everything that they can they're doing everything that they know well, how to do in order to save us so that's what I see in the world you know and I I try to learn about all the different plants and and their purposes and what they what they like to do and then I try to harvest them and use them for those purposes I've been trying to eat different wild plants that are around and then use them for medicine to learn about their properties we have a lot of people in my community who are suffering from uh, substance use disorder and opioid use disorder and there are plants that are available to help with those kinds of things and they appreciate being picked for those purposes especially when you're doing it in a respectful way and and they they will grow even more abundant if they're being used those are some of the teachings that we've learned and these this is this is very different than what you learn from this conservation ethic to touch nothing and leave everything behind just as exactly as you found it. And, you know, that conservation ethic doesn't take into account the fact that these plants have a purpose in life, just like we have a purpose in life as human beings. I want to help people and I want to make the planet better. And these plants do too. And oftentimes they have a medicinal purpose or a nutritional purpose, or a decorative purpose, and they want to be taken and used for those purposes, because that's, you know, that's the, the highest attainment of their life, right, mm -hmm. is, to, is to be ingested, maybe, to be made into a tea, in order to help someone, to help their grandchild, and so we, we do those kinds of things, and, and what our teachers say, what my teachers have taught me, is that this will spur them to become even more abundant, you know? And, and so this is about the, the natural economy and the economy of abundance. And this idea that we all have a purpose in the world and we all have a, have a desire to to be used and, and, and to be part of this whole global project on the, on planet earth, right? Yeah. We're all here on planet earth and we can all do good and we all want to be doing good together. I found this part of our chat particularly interesting. So often we think of conservation as leaving nature alone, minimizing our contact with it as much as possible. Philomena's point here is that we are very much part of nature. So it's rather counterproductive to think we should leave it alone. We need the natural world and the natural world needs us. It's not about leaving it be, but rather living in balance within it. 
giving back what we take from it, serving the natural world as it serves us. Conservation in this way is about mutual respect, not avoidance. I probed a bit with her and, for discussion's sake, asked if a factory farm livestock owner, something we know is heavily pollutant and abusive physically and psychologically to the animals within, and not good for this planet, could use this philosophy as a justification of their practice. That these animals are here to serve us, not avoid us. And so this is just an example of taking nature up on that offer. Philomena outlined the differences. We're not going to be doing everything correctly all the time. And, you know, so our, we have this allowance of grace that we're provided and this love, this great love that they have of us. But at a certain point, there are natural consequences that occur. And as human beings, we know that putting an animal in a factory farm is wrong. We all know that at the core of our being. We know that pigs and cattle and all these other animals like chickens deserve to have good things in their life. They, they deserve to have a good life. And so when we, when we do those sorts of activities, there is harm that comes from that. And the harm that comes from those factory farms is disease. And we're already inundated with disease from harms that probably have, have been a result of abuse to animals. I've, one of the things that I worked on at my last job at Glyphwick was chronic wasting disease. And chronic wasting disease has gotten out of control throughout many states. Wisconsin is just really the, crippled with chronic wasting disease, at least in the southern part of the state. And this disease came from irresponsible farming practices related to cervids. So any kind of deer or elk or moose, those sorts of animals, they're, they're the ones that have chronic wasting disease. And this is a chronic, fatal, incurable disease that's highly transmissible. And it's, you know, it's really, it's, it's impacting a lot of, of these farms, but it's also impacting wild populations of deer as well. And, you know, this is, this is one of the things that we're seeing on the landscape up in our area, we've been protected from it because we have myingan or wolves that are, are the sentinels and they're keeping those kind of diseases at bay. But if our wolf population is decimated with this new upcoming hunt and, and you know, this, this chronic wasting disease continues to spread, it's, I mean, it's just, the, the industry is really unregulated. And so these animals are just being transported all over the place and you know it's 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 bad news and it could be bad news for us as hunters in the future because the um you know this like i said it's it's incurable it's highly transmissible it is it gets into the environment and you can't really remediate it because the particles that are transmitting chronic wasting disease are at the molecular level and so we're, we're, as Anishinaabeg, we're, we're really concerned about this particular thing. And what, what's at the heart of the conflict between the Anishinaabeg and then the 
the state on this particular issue is that we see things in a very different way. We feel like as human beings, we have responsibilities. And some of the responsibilities are to keep wild animals like deer wild and that they shouldn't be confined in pens because this is where we have an imbalance in nature and of course we'll have a disease. But then the state will come in and the, you know, this, this settler colonial mindset is that we can do whatever we want to any animal because we're superior over them and the, the, the consequences that will come if they come will be so far in the future that the decision makers that are sitting here right now, we won't be affected by it. And, you know, and, and we have a, we have a really, we have these really divergent worldviews that, I, that, that really directs many of the policy conflicts that we have as Indian people with, you know, with these different kind of settler decisions that get made. And, and oftentimes our perspective isn't listened to because they just think that we're some weird hippie, animal loving people that don't know anything about anything. So oftentimes- That I can identify with. <laughs> <laughs> I get that all the time. Oftentimes when we, when we make these arguments, they come back with statements that are really placating, like, oh, you, you Indian people, we really respect the fact that you like animals. And, but, but we're always trying to say, but no, it's not just that. It's that there's natural law here at play. And if this, you know, if, if we continue to live as human beings with this attitude that consequences will never happen to us, we're just gonna dig ourselves deeper in the hole with these various diseases, with climate change, with the pollution of our water, and with all these, all these, different, all these different problems that at some point are going to lead to cataclysmic existential issues with with human beings and i think that point is coming soon well that point has already arrived and then some if 2020 was the year we were forced to wake up to the realities of how unprepared we have been for combating pandemics and a future world where they come on much more frequently and lethal 2021 has been slapping us over the head with the realities of extreme weather brought on by global warming Record-breaking wildfires, floods, heat waves, droughts, and storms are wreaking havoc all over the U.S. and the world. It is marginalized people who are impacted the most and in the hardest position to recover. For a community like the Bad River Tribe, these challenges are compounded further by the spiritual and cultural toll they are taking. My community, Bad River, our main source of revenue as a community, we, we don't have, Indian tribes can't tax. So we don't have a whole lot of taxation revenue that comes in, but we do have a little casino. And we're up in Northern Wisconsin in the middle of nowhere. We don't have 
a big casino. We don't have a ton of revenue that comes in. But that's, you know, that that's our main source, right? And when I came home to Bad River in 2011, the Bad River tribe had learned about this mine or this proposed mine that was to be located about six miles south of our reservation on the headwaters of our river. And the, the tribe mounted a full on campaign to stop that pr proposal completely. And the mining company was coming in like all these mining companies do, promising jobs and economic growth beyond your wildest dreams and jobs for everyone. And the, you know, the, the messaging that they brought was that the tribe is standing in, in the way of progress for the white communities that were surrounding our, our reservation. And because of that, the revenue from the casino dropped. And the drop was so substantial that we were all asked whether we would take pay cuts at that time. And I was working for the tribe and I had already taken a huge pay cut in order to come back home from my, from my last position. So I, I took a huge pay cut and then I took a 20% pay cut on top of that when our revenue dropped after the tribe became involved in fighting the mining proposal. And we've stood firm, you know, on that, that mining proposal went away. And right now, my tribe, Bad River, has taken a very similar approach to line five. There's an, there's an Enbridge line that bisects our reservation. And it uh, threatens our water, our way of life. It's, it was built in 1953. It's very old. And there's some river crossings that are incredibly dangerous at this point because it's an old pipe and the the water keeps moving and it's it it's hauling huge logs down the bad river so where the bad river crosses or where the pipeline crosses the bad river it's 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 a pretty precarious spot for that whole pipeline and and the tribe has taken the approach just like with the mine to say no we don't want this here and we're not going to compromise and you need to take it out because our water is more valuable than anything and our wild rice that depends on that clean water and our fish and all of our animals and our plants and everything that depends on the river because the bad river is an incredibly magical place it's like our farm we our reservation is it's 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 called a garden in our language and the, the river is like, it's this garden river. And so I, you know, we've, we've taken the approach that although we are suing Enbridge for a whole lot of money, it's costing a whole lot of money to, you know, to, to pursue this lawsuit against a multi-billion dollar company. And we're a teeny tiny little poor reservation that nobody knows about in the middle of the hinterlands of Wisconsin. but we will will continue to do this because our people don't want dirty oil running through our reservation and we don't want a dirty mine at the headwaters of our reservation 
we want clean energy. And so we've created solar farms all throughout the reservation. That's what we've been investing in. And I'll tell you that this isn't, this isn't because we're made of money. The median income for the Birch Hill community, which is one of the communities in Bad River is $6,500. So we don't have a whole lot of money to take care of our people. And some of our people make way less than that. But we know that we have to invest in future generations. And in order to make sure that they are able to survive and thrive, our reservation has to remain intact and it can't be full of tar sands oil and it can't be full of sulfide mining waste. We need our water. This is the only place on earth that we can be bad river people. So we need our water, we need our forests, we need our wolves, we need our turtles, and we need all these different, all these different aspects of creation kept intact, including the rocks, including the rocks at the headwater of our reservation, because those rocks are the genesis of our pure, clean water. And those rocks, that is the, that's the seat of the Thunderbirds and the home of the Thunderbirds. And there are underground spirits that travel through the waters. And those spirits are also protecting us on a metaphysical level. So, you know, I, I think our, our tribe and our community has taken a very strong approach to looking at the economy, not through simply just the lens of how much money is in our bank account right now and what's our cash flow, but really thinking through how all these natural systems, our clean water, our air, our, our hunting cycles and the wildlife that thrives within our reservation, how these contribute to our health and well-being and the sustainable economy that we will need to survive on into the future. The Bad River Band and Enbridge have been in legal battles over a pipeline called Line 5. This pipeline is meant to carry crude oil from Lake Superior down through the Great Lakes states, and it cuts right through Bad River. Because of the position and model of this pipeline, it is at serious risk of wear and tear that would cause it to rip open and spill millions of gallons of oil into Lake Superior and the Bad River area. If this were to happen, it would all but wipe out the entire community's local water supply, fishing supply, and severely damage local agriculture for decades. Enbridge claims it is 100% secure and losing this pipeline would require more trucks and rail to carry oil out of Superior, which they claim to be less safe and more environmentally harmful. Bad River thinks otherwise. This pipeline is one extreme weather event from being a disaster that would destroy the Bad River community. And again, if 2021 has taught us anything, it's that these extreme weather events will happen. So yeah, certainly there's, there's a lot of action going on right now around Enbridge Line 3. So Line 3 is, is a line that goes from up in the tar sands through Minnesota, through the northern part of Minnesota and several different Ojibwe reservations onto Superior, that's where it ends, Superior, Wisconsin, which is the, the westernmost, the, the southwesternmost area of Lake Superior. 
And then line five picks up from Superior and it goes through northern Wisconsin, the upper peninsula of Michigan, down through the Straits of Mackinac, where there's this, um, it's, it's this very old line. It was built in 1953. It's held together by bailing wire, basically, on the Straits of Mackinac, which is where, where Lake Huron and Lake Michigan come together between the upper peninsula and the lower peninsula of Michigan. And then the line drops down through the lower peninsula of Michigan. And then it, it ends up by, by Detroit in Sarnia, Ontario. And so Wait, we're talking um, oil or natural gas or both or they, they don't have to tell us what's in it. Okay. So it's some kind of petroleum products and they're, they're actually protected from by federal law from having to disclose what is in it because it's considered proprietary. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's some kind of petroleum products that could potentially leak into our water system and cause a, a big issue. And, and so the Ojibwe tribes all throughout line three and line five are fighting against Enbridge to stop the transport of dirty oil through our territories because it puts us at extreme risk because our, all of our natural resources are water-based and we all depend on clean water and we all have clean water. Right now is the time when we harvest monoman. That's our wild rice. And this monoman is key to our identity as people. We really can't be Ojibwe without monoman. It's the sacred food. And there is, you know, there's, there's an oil pipeline that is run by Enbridge going through the heart of, of Ojibwe country, potentially impacting all of our wild rice. Line five was built in 1953 and it goes, it goes right through our reservation. It bisects the reservation. It crosses all, several of our rivers, including the Bad River. Can I, and, can I, um, can I ask, and forgive me if this, um, if this yeah. is an ignorant question, but in terms of how these lines were established originally through Ojibwe territory, was that done? In, like, w- did Ojibwe leadership at some point sign off on that? Where there was there no say at all for Ojibwe no. leadership? Like, what? How did that get established in the first place? Sure, that's a great question. So, in 1953, th- this was this was a period of time when tribal sovereignty had kind of ebbed to its to one of its low points. And the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, was in charge of allowing really anything, any kind of business operation to occur within our tribe's trust lands. And so when Enbridge wanted to build its, its pipeline, it naturally wanted to go across our reservation because it was just very easy for them to get the approvals. And in fact, our tribal elders and the leadership did not even know that the line was being built until they began hearing the dynamite. So the line was dynamited all the way across our our reservation. So they didn't know this was happening until they started hearing the explosions. And this is, I mean, one of- Is that not against the the law? 
No, no. I mean, this is this is settler colonialism. Yeah. You know, and and the the Bureau of Indian Affairs just approved really any kind of any okay. kind of enterprise or anything that would it would provide I don't know even a couple thousand dollars into into the tribal coffers because then the bureau could use that money to you know administer the tribes or whatever and I'm guessing so, fast forward you know 60 70 years you said 1953 right yeah nearly 70 years today <clears throat> I'm anticipating that there has not been much of any economic share in the upside of that to Ojibwe people no, not to my tribe. Some tribes have gone into business with Enbridge and approved the pipeline to go across and have gotten, I don't know, a couple million dollars. But my tribe is has engaged a um, nationally known law firm to sue Enbridge for trespass. And in so doing, we, we should be collecting damages for the for the trespass that occurred that would be up in the millions of dollars. But in the meantime, it's it's just a it's a lawsuit. There's there's lots of depositions that have happened, and and the company is is being very aggressive with respect to Bad River, and Bad River really isn't giving in at this point at all, and and is, you know, just the position of the band is that the the company needs to pick its pipe up and get get rid of it. We need to move off of fossil fuels as fast as possible. So it's all but impossible to defend this pipeline, given the additional risks it carries. We shut down the Keystone XL pipeline project in January, and we should do the same here. That said, those working on the pipeline, not the Enbridge execs, but all the blue-collar contractors actually doing the work, should be compensated in my mind with severance to go along with the federal or state mandate to shut it down. Something we didn't do with Keystone that would garner more support for these types of shutdowns going forward. I next chatted with Philomena about the lack of representation Native people hold and keep public offices and private corporations. This is not only holding these communities back, but holding all of us back. We would undoubtedly be better prepared and equipped to address climate change if more Native people held leadership positions. It's really interesting. In the United States, the, the prevailing experience of racism in the United States by Native American people is one of erasure. And it's this idea that we all disappeared or we went extinct or that we still live in the historical past, that we're not relevant to present day times. And a lot of people will think, well, you're Native American, you live in a teepee, or they, you know, many people in, in the United States have never met anyone who's Native American, belongs to a tribe. And if, if you look at our educational system, even in school districts that are predominantly Native American, like my own, where my kids go to school, they really don't see themselves reflected in the curriculum at all. And this is in a district where there's big, huge Indian tribe. My tribe is Bad River. It's, it's, it's fairly big. It takes up half the county. And, and there's lots of other Indian tribes all over. And these Indian tribes are exercising their sovereignty and they're engaging in all sorts of really complex 
internal and then external political situations. And, you know, to not, not be, not, not see themselves in, you know, reflected in the educational system makes it really difficult for our kids to succeed. So we have the highest high school graduation dropout rates of any other race. And I mean, there's, there's that, and then there's, you know, there's, there's education, sort of this implicit racism within the school system curriculum itself. And then there's explicit bias and racism on the part of teachers and superintendents and all that, that make it very difficult for our people to be able to matriculate successfully and then you know, graduate high school and then go on to more advanced degrees. And that, that continues to be a really significant issue for us in terms of being able to participate in these conversations and, and you know, in, in government areas. I've been working in tribal government for about 10 years. And one of the biggest issues that we face is just the human resource question. So we don't have enough of our people who are going to school for the various specialties that we need in order to have our tribe function at the highest levels. So oftentimes we have positions that are open for a long time or else, you know, the thing that we suffer from is we're in a very rural area. And so we don't necessarily have other people coming in and, and being interested in working for our tribe, even though we're doing amazing things, we're doing, we're literally fighting Enbridge energy company. We're, we're, we're doing amazing things, but it's really hard to recruit people to come in and to do these things. And so if you look at somebody like, like a Deb Holland, Deb Holland also had a really hard scrabble life. And she, I, I don't know her story by heart, but I know that she was a single mom going to law school and, you know, facing financial difficulties. She was on government assistance for a period of time and really had to, had to fight in order to be listened to. For some background on Deb Holland, we've covered her before on the Animalia newsletter. She's the current Secretary of the Interior for the U.S., the first ever Native American to hold a cabinet secretary position. So long overdue. She is of Pueblo descent and served in the U.S. House of Representatives prior to her current post. You know, and as a Native woman, I mean, we talked about before, I'm a Native woman. I have a lot of white privilege because I'm white passing, but I still, you know, experience a lot of being treated like a little woman. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And all the, you know, all the things that I do extremely well. Like I've mastered all kinds of, all kinds of issues. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm really quite, quite proud of my ability to take down state and federal representatives when we come head to head on issues like wolves or CWD or other, other issues that I, I know inside and out, but still I face, I face, you know, just the disrespect that comes from, you know, both being a woman in this society and being a Native American. And, you know, our perspectives are often treated like, oh, you, 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 you Native Americans are so cute and quaint in the fact that you, oh, you like these animals and, 
you you still retain this culture that's historic and ancient but yet there we don't get heard oftentimes when we're telling policymakers and legislators and and other people who are in power to make decisions on important issues about the substantive scientifically based information that we're providing and our arguments get just sublimated into these you know into these into a cultural barrel it's it's not that we're simply talking about culture all the time certainly we we talk from our culture but so does everyone else and when we live inside this settler colonial construct we're just otherized all the time and as native american people it's often i mean it's it's like a surprise that we exist anymore and then the fact that we have anything to say is is oftentimes really not taken seriously and and that's that's a real problem because as a people we have a very different perspective on these big environmental questions and these global questions related to our our existence as people and you know our our purpose as human beings on this planet and if our perspectives are not taken into consideration for instance on on the wolf question i mean if if these states like wisconsin if they're able to crucify wolves and put wolves back into an extinction state this is going to have some very serious implications for the ability for our forests to survive with the changing climate and here in wisconsin and you know and and these these kinds of issues they bleed into other states as well and you know when we're talking about our forests in wisconsin and we're talking about forests globally worldwide the forests are critical to our ability to survive and sustain as a human race we absolutely need our forests and we need our forests in tip-top condition so if we do things as a human race like ex extirpate predators from our forests again this this isn't the 1890s where we're going to be forgiven we're going to have serious consequences that may not be fixed or may not be fixable so it's 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 it it's frustrating you know it's really frustrating because we have so much to say about the world and how things should how things should go and how how we should behave as human beings we should behave respectfully as human beings and we're not we're not the tip top of the world we're actually the most vulnerable and if if we act like that and if if we make decisions based on a long term generational perspective and not simply a quarterly profits perspective we might have a chance you know we might have a chance as human beings to extend 
you know, extend the good life and this, this when this good life that we have as an Anishinaabeg, extend it beyond, you know, more to, to more people. I mean, this is, this is about our ability to thrive and survive and, and, you know, continue to be here on this planet doing this human being like thing, you know? I asked Philomena, what issues and priorities stand out to her? There are so many things to address on the climate front and there is no silver bullet. And in her naturally humble style, she explained why she's focused on what's in front of her. From the perspective of, from you as some, as a, as someone who has experienced, you know, both living in white culture, living in uh, Anishinaabe culture, and has spent, from what I understand, a lot of time really studying both and, and understanding the dynamics of both. How has that shaped your perspective on where we prioritize the, the litany of things we need to address on the climate front and not be overwhelmed by it, but actually start to like break it down into these pieces that we need to solve and in what order do we need to solve them? Like, where does your mind go when you think of the priorities on the, on the, larger, on the larger front around the climate crisis? I think that's a really hard question, but for, my, for myself, I came back to my home community and I'm digging down here. And I ran for local office. I serve on the county board. I'm a county board supervisor. It's sort of a thankless thing. It's 21 members. And a lot of, a lot of people have been there for a long time. I, I feel like I add a different perspective. And I mean, this is my home and I will learn about my home and my, my territory, the plants here, the animals here, the water, how everything works here in this ecology. And I'm talking about my watershed. I've gotten to know my watershed and the threats that we are dealing with in our watershed. On, you know, we have sort of urbanish areas and rural areas, farm stuff, forests, and, and, and really, and, and really trying to dig down here on a very local level to develop the relationships, number one, that are needed. And these are relationships across political divides. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't care. I'll work with people who are, you know, right wing, if I can, and people who are more on my own political, you know, leanings. But, you know, we, we need to have common ground on the, you know, on these, on these localized environmental issues. So I think I mean, that's a great I, answer, but mm-hmm. not to interrupt you, but I think like saying, Hey, the way I'm, <clears throat> you know, approaching the, this kind of larger challenge we're facing as, as a planet is I'm very hyper-focused on my local community and, and, and addressing some of those things that are more in, you know, in your purview, right. More in your control. And I think that there's, there's a lot of good reason like, like to, to, to back up sort of that, you know, cause like sometimes I, you know, I, I think if you focus too wide and large and you, you scram, you can't, you have days where you can't feel like you're making any impact. I'm sure you feel those days on a local level too. I'm, I'm sure those sure. are there, yeah. but you know, if, if you go too wide, right. You, you, you end up kind of 
you can end up in a very hopeless state and feel like very small and meaningless. So I, I think like, I think the, you know, if that is your answer, I think the answer being, I'm really focused on my local environmental issues and community and social issues. And that's what I'm addressing and working on making a difference for. I think that's a great answer. Yeah. And I, I mean, I do, I do public health also. I work on public health issues too, because I mean, you know, I, I talked about the fact that we suffer from this human resources crisis. And yet we have so many people who are really wound up on opioids and other, other very, you know, very tricky and addictive substances. And, you know, I, I do whatever I can to help people who are stuck in those situations make the best choices they possibly can. And then also, if they're, you know, if they're interested in trying something else, I'm, I'm there for, for them as well, because that's, you know, that's, that's what I see that so many of our people have reacted to the racism and the settler colonialism that they've experienced in a way to become very self-abusive, you know, and, and we've also had just, we've been targeted by these companies that have specifically wanted to make big profits off of rural people and Indian people have suffered immensely from these marketing campaigns. And, you know, that's, that's just the reality. That's, that's what my people are dealing with right now. And, you know, we, we have to do what we can in order to find solutions for that as well. I find it really compelling that Philomena works across climate, social, and public health issues in her career. One of the frameworks we need to create more awareness around with climate change is that it is a massive public health crisis. When millions are displaced from extreme weather, disease and illness are tragic byproducts. Toxic runoffs from our cities have been spilling into our water supply for years. Droughts and heat waves usher in famines, as we are seeing in Central America and parts of Africa. And let's not forget that most viruses are passed from illegally poached animals or abused livestock to humans. Whether this was the case with COVID specifically or not has not been proven, and it's beside the point, because it was the case with Ebola, SARS, H1N1, and many others and many more that are waiting for us going forward if we don't get our act together. In finishing up our discussion, I asked Philomena to return to the beginning of our sit-down and share any final points she wants our listeners to leave with on how her cultural experiences and philosophies can help us in our fight for climate justice. It's, it's not appropriate for me to tell people what to do or what to think. Me, you know, if it helps, because I, I don't, it's not, I guess what I'm getting at is not so much what should we do or how should we change, but let me kind of rephrase it as, and, and I don't, and I don't want this to come from, Philomena, tell us, you know, the, the kind of Anishinaabe approach to this, but tell us the Philomena approach. Like you, you are a very unique individual in terms of the experiences you've had and all, all, and let's just frame it from your perspective, like just, just Philomena, you're not necessarily representing anything beyond yourself here in this discussion. And at least in this last chapter of it, you know, what, what, what do you want to share, right? And maybe it's not so much a, what do you want to tell people to do, but what 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 that we haven't discussed because we have just you've already shared a tremendous amount of value in this discussion so far. But like, is there anything else you'd want to share? 
and you'd want people to know or or you know to think about not not necessarily oh now Oh, you have to think this way, but to actually just ponder and 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 think about. I I don't know. I mean, my approach to so many things is that I I don't know, and I want to learn, and I feel like oftentimes the dominant culture. It is shameful to, to admit that you don't know everything. And, and, I, and I feel like that's a major shortcoming that we have to deal with. It's like, oh, I have to be the expert on everything and know everything. And it's just impossible for human beings to do that. And you get so much more. I get so much more when I come to a topic or a problem with the, you know, with, with an open-mindedness and a perspective that I, I have a lot to learn from everyone else and I'm not any better and I'm not any smarter and other people have a lot to offer in terms of their own, offering their own expertise and teaching me. And I don't care if, you know, the person is young or old or maybe has a developmental disability or a different way of thinking about things or a political perspective that I don't agree with or you know just think about all the different ways that we can separate ourselves and divide ourselves and cut ourselves off from that other person or that other being out there in the world that we can learn from. And, you know, it's, if, if we think about it in terms of human beings, I think that's easier to conceptualize, but then we can move it up a level and we can think about it with everything else that we experience and encounter. And if we can approach the world in a way that comes from a place of humility, and I don't know all the answers, and, you know, you, whoever you is looking at me or, you know, I'm, I'm in this, I'm in this forest right now and I'm, I'm looking at all these plants and there's, you know, I see some basswood there and, oh, basswood trees are amazing. And they, they really have all these gifts. And I feel like when I see the basswood tree, I, I have a lot to learn from that tree. And I know I have a lot to learn from the basswood tree. And I, you know, I come to that tree from a place of humility. And, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with a lot of plants and I feel like if you, if you come into that place where you, you're not the expert and you're not the top of the world, but you're just trying to learn especially with plants, they will come to you and they will literally come to you. I mean, I've had plants in my life where I've just had an intention. Like I want to get to know amaranth and I've had that intention in my mind for years. And now I have this garden in front of my garage and there are these giant amaranth plants that have literally just planted themselves there. 
And I really had nothing to do with it except this, you know, this intention in my mind that I, I want to get to know them. And, you know, so I feel like coming from a place of humility is the greatest strength because that's when you, when you're in a place of humility, that's when you can actually learn something. So, yeah, I you know, that. I, that's, I think that's, that's a great um, piece of advice. That's what, that's what I, you know, that's what I try to go around with. I, I don't try to, I don't try to put myself out there. Like I'm the biggest, baddest expert, even though I am kind of a badass. Is you know, I, yeah, I don't, I, I, I remember my place and I know that, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just here to learn. I'm here to serve. I'm here to, you know, help, help people make it to the next level. I really feel like that's, you know, that's why I'm here. I'm here to make it. I'm here to help people make it to the next level because that's a question. It's an open question at this point. And I'm, I'm really pulling for humanity and, and, you know, I'm pulling for us to change, to change and learn and become the kind of people who can survive way into the future. Right. The badass from bad river. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, I think it's a great perspective and it's very valuable and important. And, and I think, I think being and staying humble and, and being comfortable with that is kind of badass. Like I, the, the thing that I always, for me personally, that I always try to echo to people is, is to stay curious. And I think there's some, I think humility and curiosity are, are sort of like good friends. Absolutely. They go hand in hand. Yeah. But yeah. I love how you framed it. And, and yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And, and look, I, the work you're doing and the time I've gotten to know you is super valuable. And, you know, I, I hope, you know, you, you recognize that and the, the effort you're putting in to the work you're doing, the, the care you have it for the passion, the compassion you have for for humans and 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 all living creatures it's it's super important and you know the the only way i think ultimately we're going to solve this is if we you know we have more philomenas and the philomenas we have are speaking up and doing so in a way that is inclusive and brings people in and so i think you do a great job of that a big thanks to philomena for taking the time to chat and the work she's doing what an awesome and powerful voice and human being Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for supporting Animalia and all the incredible life that calls this big blue planet home.